What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've been talking about the infiltration by the FBI to activist movements in Colorado during the summer of 2020. Continuing our conversation about the FBI and their engagement with activists and movements, we are joined by Mike German, a fellow with the Brennan Center for Justice's Liberty and National Security Program. He is also a former special agent with the FBI and author of the book, Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Very good. How are you? Doing all right. Um, thank you. Grateful for hot spots on the phone. <laughs> Glad to have yeah. you um, on the show. Mike, have you been following the case in Colorado? And if so, what are your thoughts? Uh, yes, I have been following that case. And uh, it's not surprising to me. And, and um, it, it's remarkable the, the reporting that Trevor Aronson has done to obtain the, the materials that he has, I think that's pretty unprecedented to obtain an entire case file for uh, uh, an undercover operation. Um, and I think it, it's really indicative of how the law enforcement and intelligence powers the FBI was given after 9-11 are so easily abused. Can you talk more about those powers that the FBI was given um, after 9-11 and the domestic terrorism rubric? Uh, sure. So uh, the FBI's rule book is the Attorney General Guidelines, Attorney General's Guidelines. And these were first implemented in 1976 after the Church Committee investigation revealed the abuses of the COINTELPRO era of the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. And these rules uh, were pretty basic in in trying to compel the FBI to be more of a law enforcement agency rather than an intelligence agency. Uh, it was intelligence authorities that were abused during the COINTELPRO era. And the way it did this was by establishing a criminal predicate. The FBI had, had to have a reasonable indication uh, that somebody they wanted to investigate was actually committing a criminal offense. Keep in mind, all terrorism, all espionage involves criminal activity. So it, it shouldn't have been limiting. And I found as an agent in the, in the 1990s uh, that, that it was actually helpful to me. Uh, I was an undercover agent investigating neo-Nazi skinheads. And all of them were saying things that, that personally offended me and horrified me. Uh, but the, the requirement that I actually document evidence indicating that they were reasonably uh, believed to be committing crime helped me keep those investigations properly focused. And unfortunately, after 9-11, those rules were relaxed significantly. First in, in uh, 2002, shortly after 9-11, and then again in 2008, well after 9-11, uh, when you, you would have thought that the emergency would have expired and it was time to, to refocus the FBI. Instead, they expanded even further to where no criminal predicate is necessary to justify an investigation. So the prioritization of terrorism, terrorism, of course, is a political term, so it politicized the response to terrorism. Terrorism, therefore, is politicized as well, uh, and it basically caused a repeat of 
the, the same sorts of abuses that were involved in COINTELPRO. And one of the reasons that I used the term disrupt in the title of my book is because the concept of disruption uh, was something that was taken directly out of COINTELPRO and, and reestablished after 9-11 that suggested the FBI had the authority not just to investigate criminals, but to disrupt the activities of people they thought were challenging the status quo. And the Black Lives Matter movement obviously was there to challenge the, the status quo, so the FBI clearly saw it as a threat that, that needed to be treated just as any foreign terrorist threat would be treated. Mike Brennan, at the, the, one of the things at the heart of the case in Colorado, is this issue of free speech. The feds say their actions were justified because the activists allegedly utilized violent speech. But since 2015, I mean, before that too, but since 2015, we've seen this upsurge in white supremacist groups and actors who say all sorts of things all of the time and everywhere. And there's direct linkages to the things that they say and acts of violence against black, brown, uh, indigenous, queer community members. Uh, Richard Spencer is a case in point. We have not, however, seen the same kind of targeting of this demographic. Talk about that and why. Um, so it, it, this concept, you know, the, the, again, where, where you get to a criminal predicate is what's necessary to overcome this concern about the, the First Amendment. And unfortunately, because uh, the lack of a criminal predicate, bias infiltrates the analysis where it's easy for an FBI agent who the FBI is still predominantly white and predominantly male to see some social movement that is challenging that white supremacist dominance in the United States as threatening, threatening to the status quo powers that exist. Uh, and, and that's what we saw dur during COINTELPRO with the, the targeting of the civil rights movement. And obviously, the Black Lives Matter movement w was raising the same challenges to the status quo. So, you know, unfortunately, one of the things that, that despite prioritizing domestic terrorism uh, since 2015, the FBI doesn't collect domestic terrorism incident data. So they don't track actual criminal acts. And, and, and that's the, the diversion away from the criminal predicate to where they're looking at what they see, what they perceive as threatening rather than looking at actual criminal acts and then following those criminal acts to, to identify the groups that are actually causing harm. And you know, people who, who are using incendiary rhetoric, uh, unless it is in, uh, inciting violence, which requires some... Uh, uh, analysis around the, the timing of the violence that results uh, is less a, of an issue for, the, for law enforcement to focus on than the actual criminal acts. But failing to collect the evidence of those criminal acts and document them and understand how they're related to one another uh, impedes the FBI from focusing on the most serious threats. Uh, you know, and part of this is politicized, right? Shortly after 9-11 in the domestic terrorism field, obviously the focus was on international terrorism, foreign terrorist groups, but 
In the domestic terrorism sphere, the FBI publicly stated that environmentalism was the number one domestic terrorism threat, even though there's not a single homicide related to environmental activism. So you have this combination of political bias along with the lack of a criminal predicate allows the FBI to target groups, not because they've committed any criminal act, but because they're saying things the FBI doesn't like. Mike Brennan, there are more cases like this. Talk to us about, um, and in another case where the courts seem to agree that the FBI entrapped folks, uh, talk to us about the Newburgh Four. Walk our listeners through what happened with those young men. Again, black folks. Right. So, so uh, the tactics that, that Trevor documented in his reporting uh, regarding the Denver activists followed a, a, a typology of an undercover operation that I don't know that I can say didn't exist at all prior to, to uh, 9-11, but certainly was expanded after 9-11, this idea that the, the FBI adopted this concept of terrorist radicalization, even though it's completely unscientific, it's not supported by empirical evidence, that people with bad ideas or, or, or radical ideas are the ones who become terrorists. So if you identify the people expressing radical views, those are the people who need to be monitored in order to suppress terrorism. And because the FBI was prioritizing uh, international terrorism, and we're a very fortunate country that doesn't uh, get a lot of international terrorism, uh, they had to manufacture cases. So what they ended up doing is finding people who they felt were expressing radical, radical views and then using undercover informants and undercover agents to encourage them to commit a terrorist act. And the, the Newburgh case was one of the most egregious where uh, an FBI informant who had a long criminal history uh, was used by the FBI to identify people in an impoverished black community who were Muslim and offer them rewards for uh, participating in a government-conceived terrorist plot. And uh, unfortunately, the, the, the methods they used were so egregious, I mean, they gave these people who didn't have any resources at all, a stinger missile, as if they could have somehow obtained a stinger missile on their own, which is an absurd concept. But what it did is allow them to have the stinger missile in court. And, and that would influence the judge and the jury that, okay, this was a dangerous group. Uh, when in fact, they were highly incompetent to commit any kind of terrorist act, as the judge said at sentencing, only the government could have made terrorists out of this defendant. Uh, so uh, here, some 10 years later, three of the people, three of the four who were wrapped up in this plot, uh, appealed for uh, compassionate release, and the judge has granted that compassionate release, challenging this, this methodology that the FBI used in manufacturing these terrorist plots. But unfortunately, because back in 2009, when they won this case, uh, what they saw was success. Wasn't successful in actually identifying real terrorists, which was the mission, but success in obtaining statistical accomplishment and, and sensational headlines that allowed the FBI to continue obtaining 
counterterrorism resources. You would hope that that between Trevor's reporting on this case in Denver and the the judge's opinion in the Newberg case, uh, the FBI would would and more importantly, the Department of Justice and the uh, uh, Department of Justice Inspector General would would scrutinize this methodology because I do believe uh, that it's not designed to catch terrorists, but rather to manufacture terrorism prosecutions so that they can use those statistics to obtain resources. Mike, it's it's good, I, I guess, that the courts are addressing some of these instances after the fact. Of course, it's after folks, you know, like the, the gentleman in the Newburgh case are languishing uh, in prison. But who's supposed to be the watchdog that stops the FBI from behaving like this in the first place? Uh, well, there there is an oversight regime. Unfortunately, after 9-11, as I said, the attorney general guidelines were significantly relaxed. In fact, in, in 2010, uh, it, well, I'll go back. In 2004, the ACLU uh, litigated uh, Freedom of Information Act cases uh, representing uh, peace groups, uh, environmentalist groups and others that thought they were being infiltrated by the FBI and found that, in fact, the FBI was using these expanded powers to investigate uh, groups that they had no rational basis to believe were engaged in criminal acts. And that triggered uh, official denials from the FBI about what was happening and a congressional inquiry and ultimately a, uh, a um, a Justice Department Inspector General investigation that didn't come out until 2010. So, you know, here six years after the fact, a report comes out that does say the FBI was improperly targeting uh, these individuals. Um, but in the meantime, the FBI and what it pointed to is, number one, the expansion of the attorney general guidelines, which allowed them to investigate people with less evidence of, of wrongdoing for longer periods of time, uh, but also uh, a lack of internal controls, a lack of oversight within the FBI. Uh, but instead of tightening the rules, in the meantime, between 2004, when the FOIA uh, litigation started, and 2010, when the uh, IG report came out, the FBI had actually expanded its authorities even longer. So things that the inspector general found that would have violated FBI policy, uh, in, in fact, were no longer violating FBI policy because the FBI had expanded its rules or the attorney general had expanded its rules. We're going to continue to cover this issue. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.